Hello and welcome to Africa Past and Present, episode 32. This is the podcast about African history, culture, and politics with your hosts, Peter Oleggi and Peter Lim. And today, also our guest host and colleague, Laura Fair. Hi, Laura. Hello. Hello, Peters. Today, we continue our series on African diasporas. We have a Skype interview with UCLA professor Ned Alpers, who is an eminent historian of Eastern Africa and the Indian Ocean world. Professor Alpers received his PhD from the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London in 1966. After teaching at the University of Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, he joined the faculty at UCLA. He went back to Africa uh, for research. He also uh, went to Tanzania again on a, on, a, on a Fulbright to the Somali National University in Mogadishu. He has served as president of the African Studies Association. Uh, that was in 1994. And he is presently chairing or co-chairing numerous committees of advanced graduate students and has supervised about 50 PhD dissertations in African history. He is the author of Ivory and Slaves in East Central Africa, uh, out with UCAL Press in 1975, and many other edited books and journal articles. He has a new book out uh, entitled East Africa and the Indian Ocean with Marcus Weiner. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you all today. Well, great. So in recent years, you've um, been very actively involved in collaborating with scholars from across the Indian Ocean, and you've produced numerous uh, collective volumes of, of scholarship. And I was wondering if maybe you could talk a little bit about what you see as some of the variations in scholarship in terms of scholars who are approaching the Indian Ocean from Africa or the Arabian Peninsula or the Indian subcontinent? Do you see major differences in terms of the kinds of issues that drive people's interest in the Indian Ocean or their approaches? Well, I think one of the interesting things about the Indian Ocean is that uh, the overwhelming majority of scholarship has been on the Western Indian Ocean. And, uh, in fact, I'm teaching, uh, just starting to teach a course in the history of the Indian Ocean this quarter with about 160 students in it. And that's one of the points I make, uh, it's a point I make to them because it's clear that the Western Indian Ocean forms one kind of a, a unity, at least it does from the time of the rise of Islam. And the Eastern Indian Ocean, uh, a, a different one. They're clearly connected, and there are many, many uh, connections across them going back to uh, at least the beginning of the current era. But I think uh, each, there's interesting reasons why Africanists have been particularly uh, uh, active in sort of pushing the Indian Ocean agenda. Now, if you look at the general histories of the Indian Ocean, they haven't so far been written uh, by Africanists. Uh, Mike Pearson, who's written really the best, uh, the best general history of the Indian Ocean, has uh, from time to time at conferences sort of chided us for being too uh, Africa-centered. Uh, hmm. As an Indianist, you know, as an Indianist, he sort of sees, you know, India lies right in the middle, and economically speaking, was clearly uh, the, the principal player. But, uh, but India also has this huge land mass that, and, and you know, the focus on uh, great empires meant that although there's a wonderful body of literature on uh, 
Indian maritime things, it doesn't sort of really, it's taken a while for it to sort of look out. And Africanists, particularly East Africanists, obviously, with the uh, uh, Asian connections of the roots of Madagascar, the uh, rise of Zanzibar, and the whole development of Swahili uh, civilization and the connection to the, to the Middle East has really forced Africanists, Africanists, I think, to look out to the Indian Ocean more than other people. But there are lots of interesting areas where um, individual scholars, I mean, the most brilliant work probably that sort of cuts across both sides of the Indian Ocean is N. Sang Ho. He's uh, an anthropologist at Harvard. The last name is H-O. And it's uh, called The Graves of Tarim, T-A-R-I-M, which is uh, just a terrific study of, of Hadrami connections between uh, Southern Arabia and Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. So, uh, you've mentioned uh, the, already some of the regional nuances that one has to tackle in studying the Indian Ocean and its history. Um, what is the view of the Indian Ocean then from the East African coast? From the coast, it's, you know, the, one day, and Laurel know this at least as well as I, that one of the uh, issues or problems, if you like, that's bedeviled studies of coastal East Africa has been that for, because of its Islamic character and because of the uh, high number of non-African loanwords in the Swahili language, that for a long time it was written off either as being not African or as being somehow um, Exotic and and not you know, not truly not truly part of the continent and right. and this is nonsense of course but uh, but it's in, if you take a look at the literature uh, and the way in which uh, uh, coastal East African history was constructed going back to the end of the nineteenth century it really did have this sort of orientalist uh, approach to it it then went through a period where Africanists said no 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 it's you know Swahili is a Bantu language, and therefore it's just African. And in the last 10 years or so, um, maybe more, uh, I think people are, are more comfortable with the fact that, uh, like uh, Malagasy, uh, which Gwyn Campbell and Pierre Larson would both argue is you know, an, Afra- an Afro-Asian civilization, that, that uh, Swahili, the, the coast in general, has got looks in both directions. The societies of the coast are clearly connected to the African continent, and they're also clearly connected to the literal societies of the Indian Ocean. And that's, so I think one of the, the reasons that, that uh, and given, and then the specifics of the history of the coast is what really has drawn East Africanists out into the ocean. The other thing, of course, is that the patterns of trade in the Indian Ocean meant that Africa was a producer of, uh, primarily of uh, primary products and then also a great provider of, of labor, at a, at a, particularly from the 18th century on. At this point, we almost lost the Skype connection. Peter Lim asked Ned Alpers about recent work on Indian Ocean history, uh, cited the work of Gwyn Campbell, for, among others, and asked about how our understanding of slavery and of African power, African agency in the Indian Ocean uh, has changed as a result. Ned Alpers responded by saying that slavery has been recognized as being not just an African phenomenon, 
and also that African slavery in the Indian Ocean was not even the most important source of labor, given what has emerged from labor networks in Southeast Asia, in India, and in China. After this, uh, Ned Alpers turned to the issue of African voices and African agency. If I could go back to the, the uh, resistance question that you sort of uh, included here, Peter, there's, uh, there's a long-term project that Marty Klein at Toronto, uh, Sandra Green at Cornell, uh, Carolyn uh, Brown at Rutgers, and uh, I'm blanking on her name, at <coughs> uh, an anthropologist in, in Italy, uh, have been involved in, which is recapturing African voices with the, uh, in the era of the slave trade. And this, in some ways, relates very much to the kinds of work that Paul Lovejoy has been doing at the Tubman Center for a long mm -hmm. time, creating an archive of African sources, um, not just the Nigeria hinterland project, but a whole series of things like this. So, there's, um, so in doing this, it's causing many of us who worked in this area before to go back and look again and again at the possibility that other sources exist. And so... Yes. I'm working on a piece right now for uh, coming out of the May conference that Marty uh, hosted at Toronto on uh, a three-paragraph narrative by a young Comorian woman who is captured, uh, momentarily enslaved, and then escapes. Uh, it's actually a wonderful little story and ends up going, going to Zanzibar where she has relatives, which in itself is indicative of the kinds of networks that exist in the Indian Ocean. This one not spanning the Indian Ocean, but taking you from, from the Comoro Islands to Zanzibar, uh, where she actually had relatives. This is in 1883. So these are, these are things that, uh, that one, one of these, these things kind of link and, and build on top of each other. It links to the work that Anna Bang has done on, on, uh, uh, on Hadrami uh, and intellectuals, uh, religious leaders in the Indian Ocean. There's just a whole series of things, and these things, one overlaps to the other. And it's really through those kind of overlapping networks, rather than grand schemes, that I think the history of the Indian Ocean, one, comes together, and two, involves Africa. Well, let me step in here and, and pick up on this uh, very interesting commentary on resistance and, and ask you, Ned, how does, the, how does resistance compare in the Indian Ocean with the kind of resistance by slaves uh, on the Atlantic side? What are the forms of resistance that, that you've come across and, and how do they compare? That's, that's, a, that's a great question, uh, Peter. The, uh, there are, you know, once you get past the, the uh, ninth century uh, revolt of the Zange. Uh, there are no major, major uprisings. There's Burton refers to a slave uh, uprising in Zanzibar in the 1830s that nobody else has ever found any found any. Right. You know, have you? Laura might know something more than I do about that. Uh, and there's a. Uh, there's slave resistance and organized slave resistance uh, in Mayotte, in the French uh, colony of Mayotte in the Comoros in 1856. But, um, but for the most part, the, the major phenomena 
of resistance are, are marooners. Uh, once people were actually got to wherever they were, they were being shipped. Uh, and there's a, I've written about that, uh, and others have written about that, both on the African coast, uh, on the including South Africa, uh, but in Madagascar, in the uh, Mascarene Islands, uh, not so much in the Arabian Peninsula, where it's very difficult to run away uh, for a variety of <laughs> geographical reasons. But uh, but certainly in southern Somalia. Uh, but also, there's clearly resistance, and this we don't know very much yet about, uh, as much as we're learning for West Africa. There's some resistance at the source. Uh, and then finally, a lot of the, the slave, these little snippets of slave narratives that you get from the British, uh, British naval patrols in the 19th century, and these are sometimes one sentence or two sentences, that people... When after the 1873 treaty with Zanzibar that was supposed to legally end the export of slaves from Africa, um, the British spent a lot of time, uh, as much as they could, patrolling the, uh, the strait between the, uh, the Mrima, the northern Tanzanian coast, and Zanzibar and Pemba. And there were a lot of individual slaves being run across to Pemba. And in that documentation, there are many, many cases of individual Africans who have run away from their master on Zanzibar. Their master has taken them to Pemba, wants to, uh, and they don't like it there. They've got a wife in Zanzibar. So there's, so there's a lot of individual uh, resistance. Uh, and we have only one or two uh, very s slight references to shipboard revolts. So it's mainly mar mar uh, maroonage. And uh, and individual uh, an individual what would be called petty marinage just running you know making your escape when you can. Mm -hmm. Laura, did you have a question? Well, um, I was just perhaps as a follow up to that, or perhaps going in a completely different direct direction. I was just wondering if you might suggest um, what you see as some of the most lucrative currents for people in the next generation to follow as they go out and look deeper into some of this uh, history of the Indian Ocean world. Uh, lucrative, given the academic profession, probably not. I've been working most recently in kind of anything detailed as opposed to sort of general things I've been doing or supposed to be doing been looking at the at the uh, Comoros and the uh, and things in the Mozambique channel where of course I've been rooted for a long time but have you know there's just so much work to be done here one of the problems and this is a general problem of the Indian Ocean is that uh, it's languages that uh, right. you can become you can become a really competent uh, Atlantic historian by you know doing Spanish and Portuguese and French and English, and if you want to pick up Dutch or, you know, I mean, basically they're all European languages that are fairly readily studied, you can study fairly readily. But in the Indian Ocean, uh, yeah. it's much different. We, they're the people, yeah. Yeah, the people who have done, who cross-trained in for East Africa and uh, South Asia have done Swahili naturally, but then usually we're only able initially to study Hindi, which really doesn't do you any good. You have to study Gujarati. Uh, right. and, and depending on where you're going, if you're looking at southeast, uh, at the eastern Indian Ocean, it's going to be much more likely to be Tamil. Uh, and 
you know, Bahasa Indonesian. Uh, uh, there, and or to, or to do even Swahili and Arabic seriously, right. to do both languages seriously, there is a, in some ways a shockingly small number of scholars over the last more than a century who've actually right. been able to, to do those two languages, other than some, some interesting British colonial officials. Uh, and so in the case of the Mozambique Channel, to give you one example, uh, quite apart from the political instability in the Comoros, Swahili uh, would be valuable, but, but uh, Shikamoro is not Swahili. It's not Kiswahili. Right. Uh, Malagasy, not there is a there's a there's a, uh, a, a very bright young French uh, graduate student who's looking at the history of uh, the Makua communities in Western Madagascar, uh, and she's learned uh, she's been learning Malagasy and obviously has French. Uh, but to really do this perfectly, she should also learn eventually. I mean, not the dissertation, but you'd want somebody to also uh, learn uh, Emakua and Portuguese. Right. And this is this is asking a lot uh, right. of somebody who's trying to get through the dissertation and and <laughs> there's a job there for them. So, so I think everybody's like I think that that uh, I'm supposed to be doing one more. Uh, Big general history of the Indian Ocean um, and a world history series. Will we get more of those? I think what we really need are the kinds of studies that look in detail either at a region or some aspect of a region or some product or uh, or look at the specific connections like the book I mentioned by Ensang Ho uh, or the work that my, uh, my former student, uh, Matthew Hopper, has done on the African presence mm-hmm. Uh, in the in Eastern Arabia, where he's he's excellent Swahili and excellent Arabic, and he's worked in the Gulf as well as in Zanzibar, uh, and uh, and there are other people there are other people like that, but it's and Laura yourself, I mean you've you've done this work that you've done it. Uh, Ned Burtz uh, has done this kind of work. Jim Brennan. There's a number of people who've worked in South Asia, uh, but there are many. Uh, Pedro Machado. There's many many. Uh, monographs and, and individual studies that could be done that uh, that simply you know, take a little imagination uh, and uh, and just to following trade goods. Uh, you, you mentioned in one of the questions you sort of that we haven't actually talked about, but you you sent to me before uh, said that you might start off uh, talking about the book of essays I recently published with uh, with Marcus Weiner. Most of those have appeared somewhere, a lot of them in obscure places, but one of them, when I looked at it again, this is the thing on, on food networks in the Western Indian Ocean in the 19th century. I wrote that, I don't know, 25 or 30 years ago, something like that, and I did it just by basically taking random notes and things I had and using the library and then reading through 50 years of the Royal Geographical Society reports and just going from mm. Mauritius to Western India, at which point I said, you know, enough, there's too much here. But that, that's a good example. You could probably take almost any food product I talk about in that article and build off from it in terms of how was, how was food produced, how right. was it marketed. And we, know, we know so very little about these things. Yeah. And it was huge in the Indian Ocean and along the Swahili coast. Right, and and there's some great, there's some terrific anomalies. You know, you get moments when there's raw cotton being, being uh, 
produced in southern Somalia and sent to India. I mean, there's all these weird things that, you know, that go against what you would take to be common knowledge. Uh, the, way in which, the way in which certain parts of East Africa, which were kind of impoverished by the colonial period, were breadbaskets for other parts of the Indian Ocean. And, and that's, that sort of thing, I think, is really, uh, is really Im uh, important to be done. So the, the one thing that I think for any graduate students who might be listening here and say, oh, maybe I'll move in that direction, is that you really have to, if you're going to do something that's seriously Indian Ocean, you have to be careful that you are not only rooted in one area, but seem to be rooted in one area. Because yeah. for all the talk about interdisciplinarity, uh, it's very difficult uh, for most history departments, which are fairly traditional, uh, to move beyond the kind of nation-state uh, orientation or, or, or continental orientation they have. So there are people, I think the first person who got a kind of this kind of Indian Ocean job uh, was Kerry Ward at Rice. Okay. He's just published a wonderful book uh, on, right. uh, on, Dutch, on the Dutch in the, in the Indian Ocean. But that connects into Batavia and, and the Cape. Uh, in some ways, this is work that uh, that if that is something that you do as the people move into a second projects. Although, as I said, uh, Hopper and Brennan and others have have done these as dissertations and uh, and have have found themselves employment. Though in some cases, people have a hard time to figure out. Well, why are you writing about this if you're an Africanist? Or if you're, you know, a South Asianist, but I think those barriers are breaking down, and uh, and that's that's what it will take to sort of continue to do this kind of work. Well, a related question here is the sources that historians would use, and uh, so to me, it, it it suggests the potential for new, uh, maybe intercontinental partnerships in digitization. We've had a recent um, slavery and abolition. Uh, database that was being sold for $120,000, which touches a little bit on the Indian Ocean. But uh, with the great interest of India, for instance, in, uh, in Southern Africa and Eastern Africa, and, and we see that sometimes in the, in the African Studies Associations in places like Mumbai are reaching out across the Indian Ocean to Africa. Uh, what, what do you think, Ned, about possibilities or maybe there are some projects already underway for the generation of new uh, more accessible historical sources on, on the region right now it's interesting that you mentioned that database we looked at it here so I said you know we've got most of this stuff in one form or another it's, it's, mm. uh, and and obviously with the Indian Ocean it was it was pretty minimal um, now the, let me begin by saying the the first place is that we no one, we have not yet thoroughly exhausted the European sources. Uh, so that's one thing. I'm, I just was, uh, got about 750 pages of material that one of our graduate students, who was an ex uh, working at the Santa, what's it, uh, CAOM, the, the, the Overseas uh, Archive of the National Archives in France, yes. she was working there. And I had these notes I had from. Of some files from 35 years ago, and I said, but it deals with uh, uh, labor from southern Mozambique to uh, Reunion and uh, in the late 19th century. And I wanted to, uh, since I've been doing some mid 19th century stuff, I wanted to see what it looked like. And I had no idea what it was, and it turns out to be you know, once you get rid of the 
covers and things like that, probably about 500 pages of statistical material and things like that. So there's a, there's, I think there's still a lot. And there's a lot of work that has to be done by pulling two or sometimes three sides together. I know in my own case that I you know, sometimes was looking at mainly Portuguese materials and only glancingly at French materials. And when I went and looked at French materials, you, you get, you know, you can really put these things together in really important ways. Uh, as far as uh, indigenous uh, archival materials, uh, this is uh, this is kind of this is a big a big project. First of all, there's there's uh, a, a lot of the material just probably hasn't been preserved. Uh, a lot of the people who were engaged in not so much business but in sailing uh, were uh, quite sophisticated but not literate. Uh, and a lot of the commercial materials that have existed in uh, that were produced, let's say, by Indian merchants, uh, just um, are probably, if they exist at all, are in family hands. Uh, Pedro Machado, who's done uh, very interesting work on the connections between of Gujarat and Mozambique in the late 18th century and early 19th century, the materials he uses are primarily Portuguese materials in the uh, uh, in the Goan archives, and so uh, I and I know that from what Matt Hopper tells me is that there's less of, you know of a parallel body of material uh, in the Gulf than you would think. There's a, there's some very interesting material, but it's not necessarily exactly the same. So. It's going to take, I think, individual scholars uh, working maybe through projects like uh, the British Library. Uh, uh, endangered Archives. That's right, the, the, the uh, Endangered Archives, to kind of slowly build up uh, bodies of, of uh, material that could be digitized in the way that has been very successfully done in places like Angola and things like that. Yes. Well, I think... Uh this would be a good time to uh, stop our discussion and maybe we can continue it at a, at a later time because that's all the time we have uh, today. Um, Ned Alpers's new book is East Africa and the Indian Ocean, published 2009 with Marcus Weiner, and it really captures uh, more than 30 years of scholarship that, that Ned's done in the area, and it's, it's an excellent read. It works wonderfully uh, for the classroom, and it really shows, I think, how Eastern Africa has been a crucial part of a much larger world um, for the better part of, uh, what, 2,000 years. And it shows, again, if we move back in history, this, this marginal Africa to uh, an Africa that is uh, supposedly at the periphery of world affairs uh, is uh, um, actually quite important, and this marginalization is very recent. Um, so I think it's, it's a major work in terms of also uh, recasting Africa as an important player in world history, uh, something that uh, surely we're going to be doing much more work and talking more about in the future. So um, thank you all for participating, Peter and Laura and Ned. I think uh, it's been a really great conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. 
Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>